From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. With Omicron, kids, parents, and teachers are between a rock and a hard place. When we don't have many substitute teachers, which is the case right now, there's a sort of awareness that every time I take a day off, or if my kid gets sick, or my kid's school closes, my colleagues will have to be covering my classes. Then, recollections of the Capitol siege from Coloradans who were there, but weren't certain what was befalling them. If I had known what was going on, I would have been much more concerned and fearful. I still thought, you know, a protest might get a little out of hand, but people wouldn't break into the United States Senate and wouldn't be threatening to kill the vice president. And a nurse says seeing the effects of the pandemic on her patients hurts her soul. So she's on to another healthcare venture. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR a part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Amidst a surge in COVID cases, Colorado school districts opened their doors this week for the spring semester. Teachers and students, however, are braced for classroom closures and a return to remote learning, having to do more with staffing shortages than anything else. Here to lay out the situation for us is CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. Welcome back, Jenny. Nice to be here, Ryan. So based on your reporting this week, how is the rest of the school year likely to unfold? As far as the semester, it's really up to Omicron and how intense the surge gets and when it decides it's had enough. But for now, we're off to a jolting start. It feels to me like schools are kind of like this airplane that's heading straight for major turbulence. And I think that parents, teachers and students need to prepare for anything, you know, kids learning back at home, kids and teachers getting sick or kids learning in classrooms with adults who aren't their regular teacher. Oh, Jenny, we know some schools started the semester in remote learning, right? That's right. In Denver, for example, there are between 15 and 17 schools already in remote learning because too many teachers have COVID or had to take care of a child at home with COVID. In DPS, there's already more than 100 confirmed positive cases among staff and another 200 among students. And Aurora School District reported 400 teacher absences the first day of school. That's about 20 percent of teachers. 400 teachers. Now, what about substitutes? There has been an acute substitute teacher shortage for a long time now. During the pandemic, many just stopped being available because they felt the health risks were too great. And some districts have boosted their wages. They're appealing to parents to join the substitute ranks. One district near Colorado Springs was offering parents $180 a day to substitute. Based on your own reporting and our own on the show, there's a strong desire to keep learning in person as much as possible. Uh, we heard earlier this week from a pediatrician, for example, who at the same time encourages mask wearing and other safety measures. Uh, Jenny, you had the chance to talk to someone at a school whose job uh, has become something 
Like an air traffic controller, I guess, to continue the aviation metaphors of turbulence. Yes, that's right. Everybody, all the teachers call it the air traffic control. Nathan Grover, he's an assistant principal at Denver's East High School. He has a massive spreadsheet, well, really more than one, that lists every teacher's two off or planning periods a day. If you can't find a substitute, East has developed a system where, let's say you have a third period as a planning period, and your turn is up, then you cover for the absent teacher's class. Then it goes on to the next person. Oh, I imagine then in a big school like East with uh, 130 or so teachers, they haven't had to go remote Not yet. Uh, They developed the system back in the spring of 2020. It took a lot of intense planning and teacher input. But so far, Grover says teachers have stepped up. As difficult as it has been for teachers, and it has been extremely difficult for teachers, I get it. It is a tough and trying time, and it is not easy. But we're a family, and so we help each other out. Now, the school had 18 absences on Wednesday, and they were able to easily cover them. Even so, the teachers I talked with said if their child gets sick, they'd feel guilty as they know it's putting a strain on their colleagues. And remember, a lot of teachers are parents. So if a nearby elementary school goes remote, a lot of high school teachers will have to be absent. As Grover said, it's kind of like a house of cards. I mean, the logistics are mind-boggling. I imagine then for smaller schools, Jenny, they just wouldn't be able to cover absences like East does. Yeah. If one teacher is absent, other classes have to absorb that teacher's students. And that makes classrooms even bigger. But sometimes schools really have to go remote because they can't find the substitutes. Denver social studies teacher Matthew Fulford says most teachers feel pretty comfortable health-wise as most are triple vaccinated, but they're nervous really about suddenly having to go remote. Fulford says even though they have a lot of experience now with remote learning. It doesn't mean that the, the transition from one model to another model is something you can do overnight. And, and I think that's why people are really nervous right now is the idea that you might get asked the night before to teach all your lessons online the following day. Um, that's that's really hard. I'm grateful to understand what a disruption that change is and that it's difficult to pull off overnight. What about parents? How are they managing this uh, turbulence so far? Well, looking at social media, it seems like many parents and teachers in an odd way are taking this surge more in stride. I should say those are parents who have access to social media while likely working from home. A lot of them told me they recognize schools are trying their hardest, but I think some wish districts could have prepared a little more and communicated more with parents and teachers. How so? What do you mean by that? Once we saw what was happening in South Africa, for example, with the rise of Omicron, some teachers and parents say school systems could have been stockpiling rapid COVID-19 tests or put in place a system where students and teachers could get tested prior to returning. New York City, for example, their school district is sending rapid test kits home with all students and staff. Right now, you're really hard-pressed to find rapid tests in the metro area. Indeed. What about communication around how schools keep students and teachers safe? What has that looked like? I went on a bunch of district websites and was surprised to find many didn't have a word about the return, as if there were no great viral surge happening. Others, like Cherry Creek, Mapleton, Jeffco, Aurora, they were more blunt about the fact that remote learning was a possibility because there likely simply won't be the staff to cover classrooms. But some parents wanted to see more in the letters. Tell me about that. Jeffco County parent, Jefferson County parent, 
Kara Smith wanted more guidance in the district's welcome back letter. She was looking for things like requiring KN95 masks. Those are the kind that fit more snugly around the mouth and nose. Updates on air quality in classrooms. Plans to keep kids separated or outside at lunch. That's the riskiest time of the school day. It's just shocking to me that there's nothing additional being done at a local level to really protect these children. Smith picked up a 50-pack of KN95 masks for 80 bucks, a price she estimates has doubled in a short period of time. Who's helping the kids that parents can't afford these or don't know that they need extra protection? I mean, it blows my mind. They should have those in the schools, or they should be mailing them to our homes. They have our addresses. We pay taxes. Give me a break. She also bought a portable HEPA air filter for one of her children's classrooms. Oh, that she has placed in the school. Yes. Okay. Uh, Others say that districts are and have been doing a lot. Uh, I understand some do have N95 masks for students and that central office staff are deploying to schools to help cover classrooms. Jenny, you spoke to a parent whose eighth grader is back in remote learning She told you that her daughter had improved so much last fall being back in the classroom, though. Yeah, during the height of the pandemic when schools were closed, her daughter got D's and F's. Last fall, her grades rose to A's and B's when they were back in class. Mm. So it was disappointing to get back to remote, uh, be back in remote on Monday. Still, her mother, Ricarda Martinez Arden, says people need to give schools and teachers grace. She's tired of all the pressure being put on teachers to catch kids up. And I told my daughter at the beginning of this year that we are not behind because she's going to spend the rest of her educational process, in fact, her whole freaking life now, hearing how they were behind. Right now, I just want to get my child through school, okay? Every child in the world is going through this right now, so we are not behind anybody else in this world. This notion of grace. Jenny, thank you so much. Appreciate the roundup. Thank you, Ryan. CPR education reporter Jenny Brandine on Omicron and the spring semester. We'll be right back with Coloradans who were inside the U.S. Capitol a year ago when the siege began, including our own Caitlin Kim. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Even before the Marshall Fire, CPR News investigated why the state has discovered the cause of fewer than half its big fires. We found that no other state in the West has a higher percentage of unsolved wildfires than Colorado. Where the Hear that story again, or for the first time, on our newest podcast, Colorado In-Depth. CPR's deepest work, documentary news, investigations, and special reporting from the CPR Newsroom. Colorado In-Depth, wherever you listen to podcasts, and on the Colorado Public Radio app. A year ago today, our colleague Caitlin Kim went to work at the U.S. Capitol for what she thought was going to be a long day of debates over the certification of the presidential election. And of course, it was a long day, but not for reasons she'd expected. The U.S. Capitol building has been locked down because protesters have stormed the chamber. Some of them made it as close to the Senate chamber doors. Those do- that chamber was locked down. Senators locked inside. As Capitol A year later, the Capitol breach remains an open wound for the country and for the Colorado lawmakers who endured it. Caitlin talked to most of the ones who were there that day about their experiences and the riot's lasting impact. When dawn broke over Washington the morning of January 6th, everyone at the Capitol thought they knew what was going to happen in the building that day, including me. Democratic Representative Diana DeGette says 
Usually certification is, well... It's sort of a routine thing. Madam Speaker, members of Congress, pursuant to the Constitution and the law... Of course, there were ways this was never going to be a routine certification. Republicans in both the House and Senate were planning on objecting, kicking off debates in each chamber. And protesters were expected outside the building. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's With all of the challenges that Donald Trump was making... Um, I frequently preside over tough issues, and I thought that the speaker might need my help. Because of social distancing, she was seated in the gallery. Think of it like balcony seating that rings the House floor. That's also where the media sits. I was on the opposite side of the room from her as debate got underway. DeGette was sitting behind fellow Colorado Jason Crow and Florida's Val Demings. And some of us jokingly looked at Jason and Val, both former military and and law enforcement, and we said, well, you guys might have to protect us. And everybody was laughing. Shortly after debate began on Arizona's count, she started getting texts from worried family and friends. Deget doesn't have social media on her phone, so she had to hear about what was happening outside from the lawmakers around her, and she couldn't believe it. Somebody said there's somebody climbing the wall outside, and I thought, well, that's ridiculous. And then somebody said, there's people in the in Statuary Hall right outside the House chambers. And I thought, well, that's, that's ridiculous, too. I left the House chamber a little after 2 p.m. I could hear the commotion outside and thought it was strange as I looked out a window that the crowds weren't behind the barriers. As I walked across the Capitol to the Senate side, I could hear the protesters banging on the doors of the rotunda. I remember asking the Capitol police officer who was also leaning down the stairwell to the doors if they were going to get in. He said he didn't know. I got my answer shortly after I returned to my desk. Back in the chamber, the House was gaveling out of session. Without objection, the chair declares the House in recess pursuant to Clause 12B of Rule 1. DeGette recalls security running around and locking doors, telling lawmakers, staff, and the press to get down behind the seats and get out of escape hoods in case of smoke or gas. She didn't don her escape mask, but the hum it makes is a sound she still associates with the day. So here we are laying there, and the chaplain's praying. Um, Pounding is getting louder, and some of us were yelling, don't forget us, because here we were still in the gallery, and, and pretty soon we could hear people starting to pound on the doors of the gallery. I was just very much in... Um, uh, I kind of called it ranger mode at the time. Nearby, Crow was doing what he could to help his fellow lawmakers. I wasn't really allowing myself to kind of process or think about it. I was just triaging the information and trying to, to figure out our way out. Because mm-hmm. at that moment, uh, we were trapped and, and, uh, and surrounded by a violent mob. A famous photo of him from that moment shows Crow holding the hand of a panicked-looking Representative Susan Wilde of Pennsylvania. On the floor below... Representative Joe Nagoose, who was tapped to help lead the arguments for the Democrats that day, spent those chaotic minutes reaching out to his young family. I had texted my wife, uh, you know, to tell her that I loved her and our daughter, and that I, that I you know, sure everything would be fine, and, and just to, to kind of reassure her. And everybody was, it was a very tense moment. Back at my desk, I was seeing emails from fellow Hill reporters saying protesters were outside the respective chambers. Even though I was a floor above them, I could hear the rioters chanting and banging on doors. As the threat became clear, I took my phone and laptop and ducked into a nearby recording booth, locked the metal door, and turned out the light. If I had known 
what was going on, I would have been much more uh, concerned and, and, and fearful. Senator John Hickenlooper, who had been sworn in three days earlier, didn't get his first real look at the situation until he and other senators were evacuated to a secure location and the TVs were turned on. I still thought that, you know, a protest might get a little out of hand, but people wouldn't break into the United States Senate and wouldn't be threatening to kill the vice president. With Pence and lawmakers hidden away and staff and reporters like me hiding in rooms, the rioters took their anger out on the people who were visible, the law enforcement protecting everyone in the building. That's something Senator Michael Bennett has a tough time reconciling a year later. There were police officers in our capital in tears because of the racist statements, that the epithets that were thrown at them. There were police officers who had served this country in uniform, in addition to the uniform they were wearing on that day, who were called traitors by the people that were attacking the Capitol. And there are members of Congress who now say this was like tourist visiting. The violence of that day is still raw for Crow, too. It was when his two worlds collided, his past serving in war zones and his present in Congress. And I never thought in a million years that I would see both of those worlds come together for me personally. Because it's been, you know, prior to January 6th, it had been many years since I had seen that type of violence. Uh, and it was a life that I thought I had left behind me in so many ways. All members of the Colorado delegation have praised law enforcement that responded that day. And all, except for Republican Lauren Boebert, voted for the bill that would award congressional gold medals to the Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police who responded to the insurrection. In some of the darkest moments of the lockdown that day, Crow felt like they had actually reached a turning point, one for the better. I remember very clearly all of us sitting in that, that secured room waiting for the Capitol to be cleared, uh, coming together and talking about how Um, this was enough. We can't allow this to happen again. There was a sense of solidarity. There was a sense that, um, you know, that shock to the system and us individually would help us chart a new course. But there was also plenty of anger and recriminations. Reports that day of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle blaming those who had objected to the election certification for the political rhetoric that fanned the anger that was unleashed on the Capitol that day. It was evening by the time the Capitol was secured, and lawmakers announced they intended to finish the certification. I decided to stay. I wanted to see how the afternoon had affected them. I remember how tired and shaken the senators and Congress members looked as they returned to their respective chambers to finish the work. For Deguse, that was one of his defining memories of the day. He spoke on the floor when the House returned. It's been a long day for our country, a long day for our republic. Let us dispense with this. Let's do the right thing. Let's honor our oath. Let's certify the results. And let's get back to the work. He admits he was shocked when some Republicans ignored that plea and continued their objections. You know, you, you could still see the Capitol was, was in ruins. You had, you know, you, you had uh, furniture and all kinds of destruction. I had hoped that more of my colleagues uh, would rise to the occasion and recognize, given everything that had happened, that it was time to put partisanship aside and do what was best for the country, which was to certify the election results. Um, and, and many did. And I, I applaud them for that. And I uh, am grateful for that. 
But yes, I was shocked that so many did the opposite. Boebert and El Paso Republican Doug Lamborn both voted to object. Their colleague Ken Buck did not, saying the Constitution was clear about Congress's role, just to count the electors. I remember seeing Buck and Boebert on the floor shortly before the lockdown and tried to get their view of the day, but neither agreed to be interviewed for this story. This is what Buck told CPR News the following day. And it was a, a crime. It should be prosecuted, but it is not a coup. And any member of Congress has suggested where a coup is, is using the kind of rhetoric that we need to stop using. At Boebert's end-of-year press conference, CPR's Stina Sieg tried to ask her about the legacy of the insurrection. So it's been almost a year since the insurgent attack on the Capitol. And <laughs> Go ahead. Is the, is the funny part that it's been almost a year? No, the funny part is is how you're classifying it. So, okay. yes. How would you rather classify it? Um, That's fine. Just, uh, whatever you just go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Her answer involved turning the blame to Democrats for conspiracy theories regarding Trump and Russia and defending her decision to object to the certification because some states changed how they ran elections due to the pandemic. When it comes to what happened last January 6th, Crow, for one, is clear on his definitions. These were insurrectionists. They were rioters. They were people out for, for blood and, and were trying to undermine our democracy. There was a protest earlier that day. That's not what occurred at the U.S. Capitol later that afternoon. And this goes to the heart of the problem of that day, how January 6th is viewed not just a year later and not just by Democrats and Republicans, but the big picture question. Was it a turning point for the nation or was it a breaking point? Senator Bennett has thought a lot about democracy over the past year. On January 6th, he wondered how other countries like Russia and China would capitalize on the invasion of the capital to point out the failings of democracy. And more importantly, how it would affect others who see America as a beacon of hope. All the people in the world who live in corrupt societies, who live in violent societies, who live in tyrannous societies for whom the United States stands as a model that something can actually be better, that there's something out there that human beings can aspire to. And I worried a lot that people would lose hope as a result of what happened here. But he's also surprised at how some Republicans, since that day, have played down what happened. It's really hard to work with people who brought this mob on the Capitol knowing completely that this was a big lie. But he also closed his remarks that night by saying it was a privilege to work with the senators in the room. I think there are Republicans and Democrats who went through this together who have forged a closer bond because we believe in the Constitution. We believe in the democracy. We don't, all of us don't believe we were sent here just to create as many Twitter followers as we can, just to raise as much money as we can, just to foment as much division in the country as we can. There are some people like that here, and it's very hard to work with them. But for others, you know, I think that it's actually built opportunities. Still, Nagus feels things have gotten more tense on the House side in the past year. Politics were already vitriolic when he was elected in 2018. In some ways, he thinks it's just accelerated. You have members saying terrible, awful things about each other. And, uh, you know, I think engaging in behavior that just is not, uh, uh, you know, becoming of of serving in, you know, the United States House of Representatives. He fears lawmakers and the public have come to see people with different views as enemies. And we're, we're going to have to figure out a way to 
to listen uh, to each other and, and to understand each other. It's a conundrum, something all the lawmakers I spoke with mentioned. How do we improve our political discourse? Crow thinks everyone needs to get past political labels and get out of echo chambers. Put down the, the Twitter feed, put down their Facebook, turn off cable news, and, and reach out to somebody. And reach out to somebody that maybe you don't agree with mm-hmm. and have a conversation. And to get ads, the media has not helped elevate the discourse. Because the press is focusing on these very few members who are saying outrageous things to get attention, and then it just it it, ju- it just is a vicious cycle that continues. And so, so I'm sort of on a crusade right now to talk to the press about covering legislation. Because in the end, she says, that's what most people in Congress are there to do. Another legacy of January 6th has been trauma and the need to help those who experienced the worst of that day. More than 140 law enforcement officers were injured fighting with rioters, and the event led to several deaths. Hundreds of staffers, service workers, and reporters were also caught inside as rioters ransacked the Capitol. This is something Crow has been focused on, wanting to make sure no one who was in the building that day gets overlooked, and that all get the help they need. You can't ever move on when there's something of this significance, right? At an individual level, on a family level, at an institutional level as a, as a Congress, mm-hmm. but also as a country. He knows this firsthand. There was a night this past year when the House had to stay in D.C. longer than anticipated, and his daughter chose to skip a video call with him that extra evening. When he got home, he asked her why she didn't want to talk with him. You know, why didn't you want to Zoom with Daddy? What was going on? And she said, uh, I, I was afraid because... Now, every time you don't come home when you're supposed to, I think there's something wrong. And I said, um, is that because of what happened in January? And, and she said, yes. So we obviously have some things that we need to work through. DeGette can relate. She was at the Capitol on another harrowing day, September 11th. Last year's breach of the Capitol brought back some scary memories for her family. I wasn't traumatized it. I was just like focused on getting out of there. But my kids, who are now grown adults, it was almost like PTSD for them. And so I think that on January 6th, I'll make sure to really be with my kids and making sure that they're okay. All the Colorado members of Congress I spoke with say, in the end, the important thing is that democracy won out on January 6th. That's the message Nagu says he'll share with his daughter when she asks him about that day. Our country has been tested on numerous occasions. We had a civil war. But we've always, at the end of the day, rose to the occasion. And I think that that, to me, is the lesson on January 6th. But the other lesson they and the country were reminded of is that democracy is fragile. CPR's D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim sharing Colorado lawmakers' reflections on the events of last January 6th. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour on CPR News and KRCC.
read with Colorado Matters. For Turn the Page, we've chosen All That Is Secret by Patricia Raybon, a mystery set when the KKK loomed large. A young black theologian gets a telegram to come back to Colorado and find out why her father was killed. But she could be a victim herself. Read All That Is Secret and meet the author virtually February 8th. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. The story now of a doctor from Argentina who became a nurse in Colorado. Now, because of the pandemic, she's making another career change in healthcare. Valeria Martinez Tenrero works in oncology. And because of COVID-19, she has seen cancer patients delay their care. She has also watched as her fellow Latinos bear a disproportionate burden. And she joins my colleague Andrea Dukakis to talk about her journey thus far and this new chapter. Valeria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with the oncology unit you work at at the hospital. Why are cancer patients delaying care these days? Um, well, I don't really know what the actual statistics are, and, and I don't think we're going to know um, that for quite a while. But the reasons why delayed can, care can happen um, include, for example, um, when outpatient services are stopped, uh, patients don't go to regular screenings, for example, your pap screening, your mammograms, uh, colon cancer screening, and uh, prostate screening, all those screenings that happen in your regular, you know, yearly checkups, those are postponed. And that those are the stages where uh, early stages of cancer are detected. So we're miss, we will miss that opportunity if uh, care is delayed at that level. And then for those patients that are already diagnosed with a form of cancer, and need treatments like surgeries or radiation, chemotherapy on outpatient services. If we have the hospital saturated, then that means that those appointments have a risk of not happening too. Can, um, you, can you give me an example of a patient you've seen who came to the hospital sicker because they didn't get the care they needed soon enough? So in our case, cases, um, our patients are, once we give them chemotherapy, their immune system is basically uh, not working normally, right? So our patients are at higher risk for infections. That's the most uh, important thing for our patients that are already in treatment. Um, sometimes patients delay coming to the hospital because they're afraid of, you know, catching COVID, a patient that is on chemotherapy and immunodepressed has a higher risk to their lives. So delaying that stage can bring can have our patient come in with a sepsis that's really harder to manage. Um, so the longer you wait when you're you have an infection, the harder it is for the doctors to treat it. Obviously a physician would be more able to to answer as to what are specifics uh, it makes it more complicated, but our patients are sicker the longer they wait. What about the atmosphere in the hospital as a result of this? We've heard about nurses and others also leaving the profession because of burnout. That's mm -hmm. obviously led to staffing issues. There are also absences of staff due to COVID. How mm -hmm. has this affected you and your unit? So myself personally, I think my... Um, my point 
my lowest point was one year into the pandemic. Uh, I think every member of the healthcare team has suffered some form, signs, some signs of, of burnout. Uh, things like being tired, fatigue, um, being extremely emotional, uh, crying, not wanting to go to work. In my case, it was overwhelming anxiety, um, fear of making a mistake, uh, loss of sleep. Uh, that was my point where I said, well, I need to take care of myself. And I took time off, uh, got myself a good therapist and uh, moved on from there. But it, I think it's affected every single member of the healthcare team. It's been grueling two years for everybody. Uh, we mentioned you were a doctor in Argentina. When you first came to the U.S., you were a paralegal. You've had a varied career. Mm -hmm. Then you became a nurse. And I'm just curious, have you faced any challenges being a doctor yourself and then here having to answer to other doctors? You know, I uh, nurses here, I think, have a unique position. Um, in my country, when I left, and things have changed now, Nurses were, like the old nurses used to be here, basically a person that does whatever the doctors tell them to do. Um, we have a lot more um, freedom to work here and use our critical thinking. Uh, so it wasn't, I, I thought it was going to be much harder when I started, and that was my fear. Um, but as time went on, I realized that it is it is a teamwork um, in the hospital. Uh, doctors are not, you know, order givers. They work alongside us too. They may be prescribing, but they work with us. We're part of a team. Let's move on to your plans to work in a different area of care. You're in school to become a psychiatric nurse practitioner. How much does this change have to do with the pandemic and perhaps your own burnout from working in an oncology unit? So when, when I decided to pursue my master's degree, I wanted to, to do it in an area that I could create a little bit more of impact where I, you know, my work would be meaningful. Um, in Colorado has a huge, huge need. Our statistics are really uh, terrible. We have, you know, one of the highest incidence of uh, prevalences of mental illness, and we have one of the lowest um, access to care in the nation. We have a super high suicide rate. And when it comes down to non-English speaking, access to mental health is really terrible in the state. Um, just because there are no resources. So um, that is the main reason why I decided to, to go into mental health. Um, it was, I had decided already to do my master's degree before the pandemic started. Um, I think the pandemic really um, made it clear how much of a need there is of mental health care providers. So I, that's a need I wanted to meet. What are some of the challenges you've noticed that have been exacerbated during the pandemic, mental health-wise? Um, I there was a, a report recently that said just in healthcare, like fifty percent of nurses were reporting symptoms of anxiety and depression. Um, that's a huge number of of nurses, um, and you see it on an every, everyday basis. Just how much um, how much need there is uh, 
we not, not only had before the pandemic, the opioid epidemic, alcohol use disorders, illicit drug use, but then we have all of this pandemic related issues, all of the problems with children and depression and anxiety. I don't know when we're going to get the data for that, but that's going to be uh, really hard to see. Let's talk a little bit more about the gaps in mental health care for the Latino community. What do you think are the biggest issues in Latinos accessing care right now? So uh, in general, I think the, the biggest barrier is language uh, for those that are Spanish speakers. Um, when it comes down to physical care, uh, you can get by with the use of an interpreter when it comes down to mental health and you have to talk about what's going on inside you. The use of a, um, an interpreter can be really um, a barrier for care. You have to establish that a therapeutic, therapeutic alliance with patients and you have to create that trust bond. And that is very hard to do with somebody else listening in the conversation. Um, so language is definitely one. The other second barrier, I think, is insured status. Many of our Latino uh, population is uninsured or underinsured. Uh, they don't know how to access services, even if they have Medicaid or services like that. Um, there's a lot of bias and uh, they uh, fear they're going to not be treated as well as somebody else. Um, those are some of the barriers that are most common. Valeria, thanks so much for joining us. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Valeria martinez Tenrero is an oncology nurse at the University of Colorado Hospital. She's also president-elect of the National Association of Hispanic Nurses Denver chapter. And soon, she'll embark on a new venture, mental health care, especially for her fellow Latinos. She spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Colorado is one of the few states that sells 85-octane gas as regular unleaded at the pump. In other states, regular gas is 87-octane. One listener wondered, what's the difference? CPR's Miguel Otarola searched for an answer. Forrest Yang is a tax attorney who lives in Denver. He spends a lot of time in the car. I work in Greeley, so I drive a lot, fill up with gas a lot. The owner's manual for his Subaru SUV says he's supposed to fill up with 87-octane gas. That's considered regular unleaded in most of the country and is usually the cheapest option at the pump. That's not the case in Colorado, where regular unleaded is 85-octane. Yang thinks he may be paying more here for fuel that costs less in other states. I see the price difference and, you know, I begrudgingly fill up with 87 every time. The difference is not so much in the octane rating, but in our altitude. Gasoline and air combine inside your engine. That mixture is then compressed and ignited, which pushes the pistons down and keeps the car running. Fuel blends with a higher octane rating are more stable inside your engine. Our altitude is also a factor. The air is less dense at higher elevations, and that helps stabilize that fuel-air mixture. Maesh Albuquerque, the director for the Colorado Oil and Public Safety Division, says the altitude effect is the reason why Colorado and other mountain states still carry 85-octane gas at the pump. He still encourages drivers to use whatever is recommended in their owner's manual. Using lower-octane gas could lead to something known as engine knock, or pinging. An online school called High Performance Academy recorded that pinging, and here's what it sounds like. 
Thankfully, Yang had never heard that noise. I don't know what that is. I've never experienced it. Maybe because I'm buying 87. Yang also wanted to know whether 85 octane gas is worse for our air quality. That's a little harder to find out. It depends on the year of your vehicle, how you're driving, and other additives in the fuel. A 2015 study from the Coordinating Research Council, a nonprofit supported by the petroleum and automotive industries, found no statistical difference in greenhouse gas emissions between 85 and 87 when used at higher elevation. The study did not answer Yang's original question, what happens if you fill up with 85 instead of 87? You're better off following the owner's manual. I'm Miguel Otarola, CPR News. A new high-rise is coming to Denver, and it kind of looks like a giant planter with vegetation bursting from its midsection. At 16 stories, one river north will be both residential and commercial. One of the developers is the Max Collaborative. Kevin Ratner is their chief development officer. He joins us from Los Angeles. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Rod. Nice to be with you. Nice to be with you. I'll mention that you have recently had some surgery on your throat, uh, which may be reflected in your voice at the moment. Plans call for 13,000 square feet of green space, including water features and trail-like walkways that traverse about four floors of the building. Why is this the right design for Denver? Well, I, I think this is the right design for many places. I think It is reflective of the nature that is inherent to Colorado and to Denver. So if this building were in another location in another place, it would have a different feel and look to it because it would be it's reflective of of the environment around it. It needs to be contextual. Well, when I hear that a building's gonna have a lot of plants, a lot of greenery in it, in an arid climate, that strikes me as not right for Denver. So explain yourself, Kevin. Well, Denver has, and Colorado has, many different uh, natural settings, right? There's the front range, there's the high altitude, there's the the plains in front of it. And this building and the plants and the biophilic nature of of the trail and the landscaped rift that comes through the building will be reflective of the natural surroundings. So it's not like we're trying to be reflective of, say, Singapore or even Southern California. We're trying to incorporate the nature that is Colorado. So the plant material, the rocks, the colors, all of that will be uh, intended to mimic what is right in front of the building. Is it going to be water intensive? No, because we want the plants to survive. And so we're not going to put something in there that's not going to make it within the environment that it is living. So the idea is to try to do uh, plants which are native to Colorado and which will survive well within the the natural environment. Is there any irrigation for this stuff? Yes. I mean, we have to have some irrigation, but the idea is not to over-irrigate so as to make plants which wouldn't normally survive survive. I'm fascinated by this idea of a hiking trail within a building. So will that just be like open to the public to climb those four stories? No, as it stands right now, that will be only available to the residents of the building because it is it is up in the building. You go from floor six to floor nine on a trail that meanders through the facade of the building. Huh. 
So who's the architect and has anything ever been built like this in the world? Uh, the architecture firm is called MAD. The principal is MA. MAD, MA Architecture and Design. Nothing here in the United States like this. This is the first uh, for rent building that they have done in the United States. They've done lots of buildings um, elsewhere. They've done a bunch of buildings in China and Asia, some in London and Europe. They did the Lucas Museum here in Los Angeles. And they've done other commercial buildings and for sale buildings in the United States, but no high rise for rent. For rent, meaning apartments, to be clear. And I also wonder if there's any affordable or attainable housing then. Yes, as a part of the incentive program to do the 16 stories in this location in Rhino, we're doing 14 affordable units. Rhino, so it's in the River North area of Denver. Just to convey a little bit more of the visuals, I mean, it's almost as if there's a canyon in the center of this building spilling over with greenery. Is it a building, a construction challenge? Yes. Uh, short answer. <laughs> it has taken a lot of teamwork between the development team, the architecture team, the engineering team, the city of Denver to all get this building to really be something that we could achieve. From its initial design to where it is today, it has changed a lot. It's, it really is very inspiring. And I've done Lots of buildings have been in real estate for 20 plus years. I grew up around real estate. I've never seen a building quite like this. But I will also say that much of the building is pretty regular. Other than this landscaped rift that goes through the building, a lot of the building, particularly on the backside, is a rectangular shape. Did the canyon add a lot to the cost of the building. I'm just, I'm thinking of people who might want to replicate something like this in the future. You know, is it a 25% increase in cost or what? Help us understand. I, I don't know that I've ever thought about the difference specifically of what the canyon would cost as opposed to not having the canyon. Yes, it definitely added cost. But at the same time, we were able to make it work. We were able to work, make it work financially. We were able to work structurally. We were able to make it work in the design. And, uh, you know, it became a goal that we really felt that, that we wanted to achieve. And, uh, you know, the building has started. We've started construction. So I believe we will achieve it. Earlier in the conversation, you used the term biophilic. So, you know, breaking that down, uh, bio life, philic, liking, friend, right? So, it is a building that you think works with nature. I want to just push back on that a little bit because it also has 178 parking spaces. So as much as this is a building for people, it's also a building for automobiles. Can you have that many parking spaces and still be biophilic? It is underground, so you won't really notice it. Um, we are next to a transit stop uh, right across the street. So, you know, we are hopeful that over time, uh, people will continue to use public transit and will become less dependent on the car. It is part of doing development. It is part of the urban environment. Cars are, are a necessary part of the development and accommodating them is part of what we have to do as developers. Do you think this building is a harbinger at all of what architecture might look like in the future? Or is it an aberration? 
Well, I think that this is something that says, hey, nature and people in the built environment can all be exist as one and we can interact with each other and be part of each other. And it doesn't need to be such a hard line between one or the other. I think it's something that I am certainly interested in. I think that it is something that is just a natural evolution. And I think a city like Denver encased in such a dramatic natural setting. I think that the the blending of the two is something which will uh, just be part of how development goes forward. So I hope in many ways it is a beacon that people will continue to strive towards and surpass. You know, I hope the next building that somebody does is is even more biophilic. That border becomes even more fuzzy and more interesting. Take it further. That's your message to the Take it further. team. Kevin, Zoom past me. <laughs> thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Kevin Ratner is Chief Development Officer at the Max Collaborative in Los Angeles. They're developing One River North at 40th and Blake Streets in Denver. The mixed commercial and residential project should be finished sometime next year. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the team that designs and builds our show. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. Special thanks to Allison Borden, Megan Verlee, and Rachel Estabrook. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.